0: Chapter One of the Sacred Herb. This is a Levervox recording. All Lievervox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit Lievervox.org. Recording by Sharon Kilmer, San Antonio, Texas. The Sacred Herb by Fergus Hume. The Latest Sensation. Lord Prelice felt desperately bored. Like Heteras, he longed for some new pleasure, yet knew not where to look for one. This was the result of being surfeited with the sweets of extraordinary good fortune. Born to a title, endowed with passable good looks, gifted with abilities above the average, and possessed of admirable health, he should have been the happiest of men, the more especially as his income ran well into five figures. And he had the whole wide world to play with. Certainly he had played with it, and with life, up to his present age of thirty-five years. Perhaps this was the reason of his acute boredom. If all work and no play makes Jack dull, all play and no work must necessarily make him blasé. Therefore, in spite of the excellent breakfast spread before him on this bright summer morning, When London was looking at its best, the young man was ungratefully wondering what he could do to render life endurable. He ate from habit and not because he enjoyed his food. He read the morning papers, since it was necessary to be abreast of the times, for conversational purposes, although very little was new therein and still less was true. By the time he arrived at the marmalade stage of the meal, he was again considering the possibilities of the next four and twenty hours. In this contented frame of mind he was discovered by his aunt. Lady Sophia Haken bustled into the pleasant room exasperatingly cheerful, and very pleased with life in general, and with herself in particular. She was an elderly woman of a somewhat masculine type who lived a simple out-of-door existence and who proclaimed loudly that it was necessary for humanity to return to the Stone Age for true enjoyment. Having been riding in the row for the last two hours, she entered in her habit, filled with the egotism of the early riser. As a near relative, she could not do less than scold for lingering over a late breakfast, and told him, also as a near relative, that she scolded him for his good. She had done so very often before, without result, and but that she loved to lay down the law would have long since given over the attempt to improve her nephew. Nevertheless, anxious to achieve the impossible, she attacked him with pristine vigor, as though aware for the first time of his bad habits. Nine o'clock and still at breakfast,' said Lady Sophia significantly, and slapped her skirts with a whip which she would have dearly liked to lay across her lazy nephew's broad shoulders. Prelice looked indolently at the clock, then at the table, and finally at his fuming aunt. "'I cannot deny it,' "'he said with a yawn. "'Is that all you have to say?' she asked, much disgusted. "'Prelice heaved a sigh. "'It was necessary to say something, "'if only to stem the coming tide of verbose speech. "'How well you are looking! "'Because I have been up since six o'clock. "'How unwise! "'You will probably sleep all the afternoon!' "'Lady Sophia snapped tartly. "'I shall do nothing of the sort.' "'Oh, very well,' he assented. "'You will do nothing of the sort. "'Anything for a quiet life, "'even agreement with the improbable.' "'His aunt grasped her whip dangerously. "'How exasperating you are!' "'I was just thinking the same about you,' "'confessed Prelice, good-humoredly. "It is so disagreeable for a late riser "'to be reminded of the time.' "'And having folded his napkin, "'he lighted a cigarette.' How long is this going on? demanded Lady Sophia fiercely. His imperturbability made her long to shake him thoroughly. How long is what going on? asked Prelice provokingly. This idle, idiotic, insane, sensual, foolish, wicked, dilatory existence. Seven adjectives murmured the young man, opening his eyes. Waste, waste. Oh, what waste! "'How long is this going on?' inquired his relative again, and whipped her skirts, instead of Prelice's back, with renewed vigor. He was forced to answer, "'As long as I do, no doubt. What else is to be done? I should like to know.' "'You shall know. Serve your country.' "'What, and be abused in the penny press? No thank you. You can surely help your brother man.' Surely only to learn how much ingratitude exists in the world. Lady Sophia stamped, bit her lip, and looked like a ruffled cockatoo in a bad temper. She wanted to quarrel, and it annoyed her that Prelice would not meet her halfway by supplying a reason. She had to invent the quarrel and bring about the quarrel and carry on the quarrel and finish the quarrel without assistance. Mary! was the one word which suggested itself, and she hoped that it would be like a red rag to a bull. Oh, Jerusalem! Prelice shook his closely cropped fair head. I would much rather serve brother man than marry sister woman. You offer me a choice of unoriginal evils. You never will face the truth, declared Lady Sophia irreverently, and forthwith according to an old established custom she proceeded to recount the family history that is she picked out the worst traits of prelice's ancestors and debited them to his account he smoked through two cigarettes and nodded at intervals not very much interested since he had heard the same oration at least a dozen times Lady Sophia, having worked her way from the reign of Elizabeth down to that of Edward the Seventh, ended with a lurid, penny-sensational picture of what would befall her listener in the near future unless he worked like a nigger. "'Such a bad illustration,' interposed Prelis placidly. "'Niggers don't work. As I have just returned from the West Indies, I ought to know.' Lady Sophia snorted down the interruption, and, seeing that he was still unimpressed, tried to goad him into industry by mentioning several of his schoolfellows who had attained to comparable fame and fortune, while Prelice, as she scathingly put it, had been groveling in the mud. "'Even young Shepworth,' ended Lady Sophia, somewhat out of breath, and he was never clever." Even he is counsel for the defense this very day in an important murder case. I'm deuced sorry for his client, murmured Prelice indolently. Why should you be? demanded his aunt aggressively. You said that he wasn't clever. He must be. Lady Sophia contradicted herself with feminine calmness. If he wasn't, he certainly would not be talking this very day at the New Bailey." Go and hear him, Prelice, and be ashamed that a fool, yes, a superlative fool, should succeed where you fail. What do you mean? inquired her nephew. With great curiosity, first you say that Ned isn't clever. Ned, Ned, I never mentioned Ned. Who is Ned? Shepworth, Edward Shepworth. Ned for short. We were great chums at Eton, you know but you say that he isn't clever, then you insist that he is, and wind up by calling him a fool. You know quite well what I mean, said Lady Sophia with dignity. I really don't, confessed her nephew artlessly. You describe such a complex character. However, as I have nothing to do today, and never have anything to do, idler, I shall go to the new Bailey and listen to Ned hanging his client." "'So brilliant a barrister as Mr. Shepworth will certainly get her off,' said Lady Sophia decisively. Prelice passed over this new contradiction. "'It's a woman?' "'Yes, Mona Chet. You know her.' "'I'm sure I don't. The criminal classes don't attract me.' "'She is not a criminal, but a lady,' said his aunt, as though the two things were incompatible. "'And you do know her.' Mona Chent, the niece of old Sir Oliver Lanwin. Prelice reflected with bent brows. I never heard the name before, I assure you, Aunt Sophia, he said at length. Remember that I have been travelling round the world for the last seven years and know very little of the latest London sensation. You ought to stay at home and make yourself acquainted with people, Prelice, including this murderess. "'She is not a murderess,' cried Lady Sophia, energetically. "'I always did think that she was a sweet girl, "'and if she did kill her uncle, it was no more than he deserved. "'I never liked him.' "'Therefore he ought to be murdered,' said Prelice, "'rising and stretching himself before the empty grate. "'So Sir Oliver was the victim. "'I have heard of him. "'He used to send Ned shells and barbaric things from the South Seas.' And now Ned is repaying him by defending his murderess? I tell you, Mona did not murder the man. I know her. I have received her. Would I receive a murderess? It might be a draw to some of your parties, said Prelice politely, and with a recollection of several dull entertainments. But I cannot quite gather from your clear explanation if she is guilty or not. Half London thinks that she is, and half asserts her innocence. What does Shepworth think? He naturally believes her to be innocent. Because he defends her? Because she is his future wife? Prelis looks startled. Oh, Jerusalem! And if he proves her innocence, he'll marry her. I suppose. As she is her uncle's heiress and Mr. Shepworth is poor, I presume he will. Ten thousand a year is not to be despised. "'But a wife with such a pass,' protested the young man. "'Ugh! Did Miss Chent murder her uncle to get the money? "'She didn't murder him at all. Look at the facts of the case.' "'I shall be delighted to, if you will place them before me.' "'You ought to know all about them,' said Lady Sophia, rising impatiently. "'Everyone has been talking about the case for the last month, "'ever since Mona Chent was arrested, in fact.' Ah, but you see, I have only just arrived in London. I shall go to my club and get posted up in the latest scandal. The latest sensation, corrected his aunt. Go to the new Bailey instead and hear Mr. Shepworth place the case before the judge and jury. His eloquence will make you sorry for your lazy, useless life. He will be a KC, cried Lady Sophia, becoming prophetic and "'Attorney General, and Lord Chancellor, and King of too, no doubt. Loud cheers!' Lady Sophia looked indignantly at the scoffer, who beamed on her benignly with laughing blue eyes. "'You have deteriorated since you left the army.' "'No doubt, the standard of morality in the army being so high.' "'Oh!' His aunt stamped and flung open the door with a tragic air. I have done with you. Your flippancy is disgusting. I repeat, Prelice, I have done with you.' And she departed hastily, lest a reply from the scoffer should spoil her impressive exit. Prelice laughed, knowing that Lady Sophia would never be done with him while she had a tongue to wag. Also he believed that she was truly fond of him, and knew that she had only too much reason to accuse him of wasting his life. He resolved to mend his ways, more as an experiment in self-denial than because he wanted to, and cast about for a model person to imitate. After Lady Sophia's conversation, the name of Edward Shepworth naturally suggested itself. So Prelice arrayed himself in purple and fine linen and ordered round his motor car. Within two hours he was driving out of Half Moon Street and was soon dodging the traffic of Piccadilly. It was so delightful manipulating the machine in the sunshine and acting as a chauffeur so appealed to him that he was minded to turn the Mercedes in the direction of Richmond. But the hints about the murder being an unusual one kept to his earlier determination. Also a copy of The Daily Mirror assured him that the accused girl was exceedingly pretty. Finally, he had always been friendly with the counsel for the defense, and thought that he would renew the tie of old school days. These things brought his smart Mercedes to the brand new portals of the criminal court, and when he had handed over the steering wheel to his chauffeur, he sought out the arena, wherein Shepworth was fighting for the life of his promised wife. Naturally, the first person at whom the young man looked was the prisoner in the dock, and he mentally confessed that the Daily Mirror photograph had not done her justice. It could scarcely do so in mere black and white, as Miss Chent needed vivid tints to convey her peculiar charm. She was one of those rare blondes who embody sunshine in hair and eyes, a dragonfly of humanity, all radiance and glow. Since she was on trial for her life, Prelice quite expected to see a white-faced, terrified creature, worn out with shame and suffering. But Miss Chent might have been in an opera box, for all the emotion she displayed. Prelice had more experience of women than was good for him, but he never beheld so perfectly dressed or so perfectly serene a girl. It would be absurd to say that so level-headed a young man fell in love with this attractive criminal at first sight but he certainly felt drawn to her. She looked like a captive angel, and without knowing the rights or wrongs of the case, Prilice mentally pronounced her to be entirely innocent. Her calmness, if not her beauty, acquitted her, as his susceptible heart decided, for no woman with an unclean conscience could have faced judge and jury with such manifest confidence prelice thought of joan of arc on trial for sorcery of mary Stuart before a prejudiced tribunal of marie antoinette and of the vestal who proved her innocence by drawing tiber water in a sieve he might also have recalled the marquis de brinvillers likewise calm beautiful and guilty but he did not the court was filled with more or less fashionable people Who came to make a roman holiday of sir oliver lanwin's violent death and miss chent's position doubtless she had been well known in society and those who had been her friends were here to watch her in the new role of an accused criminal prelice was disgusted at the heartless conduct of some ladies who whispered and tittered and used opera glasses to stare at the unfortunate girl he internally commended his aunt for having had the good taste to remain absent, and then turned his eyes on the array of barristers to search for Ned Shepworth. If the prisoner was serene in the consciousness of innocence, her counsel certainly was less composed. A strong will and the second nature of custom kept Shepworth sufficiently self-controlled to deceive those who had but a passing acquaintance with his personality. But prelice, who had known the young barrister for years, noted that his usual ruddy complexion was whiter than usual, and that his eyes seemed to be sunken in his head by reason of the dark shadows beneath them. Shepworth was a slim handsome man, brown-haired and brown-eyed, with a clean-shaven face and a resolute mouth. In his wig and gown he looked very presentable, son of Themis, if somewhat less composed than the traditionally unemotional lawyer should be. He was seated at the long table with two older men, who apparently were his coadjutors. and near the defense trio, the counsel for the prosecution, appointed by the public prosecutor on behalf of the Crown, was chatting amiably with his colleague. A keen-faced young barrister behind sat many other lawyers wigged and gowned who were taking the deepest interest in the proceedings for the moment the court was so still that the rustling of the briefs as the barristers turned their pages could be plainly heard are those two fellows assisting mr shepworth in the defense prelice whispered to a legal-looking bystander at his elbow no replied the man in a low voice The big fellow is Cudworth, K.C., and the other is young Arkers, who acts as junior counsel. Shepworth is not defending, as he was in the house when the crime was committed and will be called as a witness. So Lady Sophia was inaccurate as usual, and Prelice felt somewhat disappointed that he would not have an opportunity of hearing his old school chum orating. However, he had little time to think. For at this moment, the prosecuting counsel got on his legs to open the case. Prelice felt that the curtain had risen on a tragedy. He wondered what would be the scene when the curtain fell. End of chapter 1